Our scripture this morning is Exodus 14, 10 to 31. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided." And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that, so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Whitney. Uh, hey, good morning. Uh, if, you, <laughs> if you're visiting or if you are coming to join us for Easter, uh, what was just read is probably pretty strange to you, um, that we, um, we didn't miss the memo. We know that today is Easter at Midtown, and what we're doing is, is we're, we've been preaching through the book of Exodus this spring, and uh, this Exodus event, the, like, the defining moment in the book of Exodus, the crossing through the Red Sea, is actually um, a pretty powerful parallel between the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to explain that just briefly. I want, I want to kind of show you the parallels 
uh, in, in a macro sense, so that as we walk through this story, um, you'll understand we actually are talking about Easter today. We're talking about the resurrection today because what we need to understand about the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus leaving the tomb and dealing death a death blow, what we understand how the New Testament describes Easter for the church, for the people of God, the very first thing it talks about, the primary thing it talks about, is that the resurrection was a victory. That in the resurrection, Jesus defeated something. In the resurrection, Jesus triumphed over something. And so we have this Red Sea um, victory going on for the people of God in the Old Testament, this Red Sea deliverance where God defeated an enemy. There is, there is no greater victorious moment in the entire Old Testament than the Red Sea crossing. So if we understand the Red Sea as a deliverance that was bought by a victory, then we can actually begin to study the resurrection with the same eyes. What does it mean that the Lord won something for his people through the resurrection? The Red Sea Act will become the defining act of God in the Old Testament. Like for the next 37 books to finish out the Old Testament, every book will refer back to this moment as a defining act of God that everything else gets its meaning from. Like, don't forget, I was the God who brought you out of Egypt. Don't forget, I was the God who destroyed Pharaoh in the Red Sea. Don't forget, I was the God who held the waters at bay to let you pass through. Every other biblical writer is going to look back to this moment that Whitney just read and say to us, hey, that act of God is what will explain the rest of the, the faith journey for you. So in that way, this deliverance into freedom that the Israelites experienced, the resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament describes itself the same way. The resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament actually is and becomes the defining moment for the people of God in the New Testament. That it gives meaning to every other act. It gives meaning to every other piece of our faith journey. Don't forget that I'm the God who defeated death. Don't forget that I'm the God that resurrected from the grave. So we have these parallel um, narratives, these parallel stories that we can actually, if we understand the resurrection first and foremost, to be an act of deliverance for the people of God. We can study this penultimate deliverance act by God in Exodus 14 and learn about our deliverance and our victory and our freedom. See, what happens in the story of Exodus chapter 14 is this. The people of God were slaves in Egypt, and they were freed from slavery after the Passover event of the slaughtering of the lamb. And, and then, after this Red Sea event of them moving through the Red Sea, they land on the other side of the Red Sea as free people. They are completely and utterly free after the, res, after the Red Sea crossing. So go with me here for this parallel. That the Lamb of God, Jesus, who was slaughtered, like the Passover lamb that we studied last week, the Lamb of God who was slaughtered in the person of Jesus, three days later, a deliverance happened. Three days later, a victory happened that freed the people of God. Do you know how long the Israelites, it took them to go from the Passover freedom declaration to the Red Sea? Three days. There's a slaughtering of a lamb, and then they get to the Red Sea, and then there's a, a, a defining act of deliverance. It's the same for us in the church as we understand the victory of Jesus. He died, and then three days later, something happened. Newsflash, he got alive, okay? He got woke. So, Jesus... Jesus' victory, Jesus' deliverance over something, over an enemy, is paralleled by our Red Sea story. So we're going to study the Red Sea story with the eyes of the resurrection, knowing that this deliverance is a lot like our deliverance. They went from enslavement to freedom. They went from bondage into freedom. They were delivered from something and delivered into something in this story. So the question is, 
If that's true for us, if you belong to Jesus, you have been delivered from something and into freedom. The question for us today is that in an age, in a culture, in a world where everybody, including Christians, can tend to worship the idea of self-autonomy, can tend to worship the idea of I get to decide what makes me free. Let me ask this, this unnerving question for everyone in the room who loves the idea of their own autonomy and their own freedom. Are you free? Do you, not like do you feel free or have you declared freedom, like are you free? Or are you still in bondage to something even though you've declared I'm a free person and I get to decide for me what makes me free? Are you free? We're going to ask that question as we look at these Israelite people who have been freed from slavery at the happening of the Passover. Pharaoh, in the Passover story, frees them. He says, get out from slavery. Go. I'm tired of you. I'm tired of your God destroying me. Go. You are a free people now. They are in freedom. But they get to the edge of the Red Sea, and maybe they're not as free as they thought they were. Maybe they didn't understand their freedom like they thought they did. So first, um, let, let's do a brief recap as we understand this story, and then we'll kind of dig in a little bit um, of some different parts. But in the first few verses of chapter 14, we didn't have it read, but in the first few verses of chapter 14, Pharaoh has freed the slaves. The ten plagues have happened, and Pharaoh frees them and says, get out, I don't want to see you anymore, you're free, you're no longer in, slave, in slavery. He then has a change of heart. He says, uh, I just lost my entire labor force, I just lost my entire economy sustainer, uh, I'm going to need those slaves back. I'm in a need for them to come on back, and he's angry, and he's, he's irate, and he's, he's jealous, and he loses his mind, and what he does, the opening verses of chapter 14 tell us, he gets his entire army. So the most powerful army in the universe, the most powerful earthly army in the universe at the time, decides to bring the full weight of his army and pursue these slaves who had just been freed. He's seeking to undo the freedom that the Passover had purchased for the Israelites. He's saying, no, no, I want to write a different story. I'm not going to free you. I want to bring you back into bondage. That's what Pharaoh, the enemy, is trying to do. So again, let me help you with these parallels. This is, this is why we're studying this passage. Do you know that you have an enemy who's seeking to undo what's been done for you? Do you know you have an enemy who hates the freedom that the blood of the lamb purchased for you, and he's trying to undo what's been done for you, and he's going to bring the full weight of his army against that? And so the Israelites get to the edge of the Red Sea and they turn around. They see this enemy coming to undo what's been done for them. They see Pharaoh with his entire army coming to capture them or kill them. They don't know. And they get there and the Bible tells us that they are furious and afraid and accusatory and self-deceived. They complain and they grumble. And then Moses has um, his hands raised. The Lord says, raise your hands, Moses. And he splits the Red Sea in two. I know this is crazy to believe. Splits the Red Sea in two and the waters are held at bay and the Israelites walk on dry ground between the Red Sea walls. And the, the uh, Egyptian army is being held back by the pillar of cloud and they decide to pursue them once the cloud is removed. And they run in at their own peril and the Lord confuses the chariots, and they end up being swallowed, being destroyed by the Red Sea walls that are let loose again. And so the people of God uh, stand on the other side of the Red Sea after watching their enemy try to come and recapture them. They stand on the other side of the Red Sea, now like doubly free, because the enemy that wanted to undo their original freedom has now been decimated, and they see their dead 
enemy, their dead oppressor, their dead tormentor on the seashore, it says. And so they stand on the other side of the Red Sea, completely victorious, completely free. And the bookends of this story, the bookends of the epic tale that was just told, is, 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 is quite, is, it's meant to jump off the page at us and give us some texture to the story, to the narrative. The Israelites are at the very beginning of the story, verse 10 through 12, they are terrified and afraid and accusatory and angry. And then at the end of the story, verse 29 through 31, the, the other bookend, they are liberated, free, full of relief, delivered, they literally go through this moment. They have a transformation from being in fear and angry and shaking to then something happens to them in the middle of the story to then at the end of the story, they are free less. They go from fear to freedom. They go from terror to being delivered. So what happens that could transform people that powerfully? How do they begin so angry and end so free? Well, let's first start by studying these people to see how they were acting in their freedom on the prior side of the Red Sea when, when Pharaoh's chasing after them. Let's look at the Israelites at the beginning of the story and see if we can find some indicators as to what would let us know that they were actually still in soul bondage. What's up, Mark West? Your family's up here. Hey, man. Good to see you. <laughs> Thank you for not wearing pastel today, not joining the pastel army. So, the people, let's see if they are actually free or if they're still in bondage. Verse 11 through 12 tells us how the story begins and what the Israelites are doing. It says this, They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you when we were in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians as slaves than to die in the wilderness. So go back to the story with me for just a minute. This is how the Israelites, they turn around and they see their enemy. This is, how they, this is their initial response. These are a people who have just watched ten cosmic plagues go down. These are a people who have just watched God flex ten times against the Egyptian gods and the Egyptian powers that held them. And he won every round of the, of the bout. He, he, he won every single challenge from the Egyptian powers that be. He destroyed them ten times, and the people watched it. And then they see Pharaoh's army, and they're right back into bondage. It's like their brain has been wired to their, to like their old nature, and they're like, it's so hard when a threat comes. It's so hard when fear sets in for them not to act like a slave again. They return in their hearts to slavery. They, 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 are, they are so dramatic. They're like a middle school girl. Sorry, middle school girls. Dramatic. Love you, dramatic. That's what they're acting like, okay? It's what they're acting like. They're hysterical in the moment. It's been said before that anything that's hysterical in the present is historical from the past. Like you don't show hysteria unless it's got a history behind it. Any, anything that's hysterical is historical. Look at how they're acting in their hysteria. It's because they have a whole history. They've got 450 years of being slaves. That's all they know. That's literally how their brain has been wired. I'm a slave, I'm a slave, I'm a slave, I'm a slave. They don't know how to be free. And so now they're standing in freedom. Pharaoh doesn't own them anymore. He's freed them. He's told them to get out. But they get to the edge of the Red Sea and fear sets in and they immediately put on a slavery mentality. They actually say to Moses... We wish we were back in slavery. 
Like, take us back there. That would be better than what's happening right now. They want to go back to being brutalized. They want to go back to being tortured and enslaved is what they say. They literally say to Moses, they, they have this line, did you, did you just do all of those things in Egypt, the ten plagues, the ten signs and wonders, did you just do all of that so that you could bring us out here to bury us and have us killed because there weren't enough graves for a bunch of slaves in Egypt? Is that why you did that? And then they say this, it gets worse. They say to Moses in their anxiety and in their fear and in their slave mentality, they say to Moses' face, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone and quit delivering us? We'd rather just continue to serve Pharaoh. Didn't we say that to you? No, actually, you didn't say that to me, is what Moses could say. If you actually go back to the story, they didn't say anything close to that. Not once did the Israelites, when Moses was freeing them during the 10 plagues, not once did they say to him, just stop doing this. It'd be a lot easier if we could just stay slaves. No, the opposite is actually what happens. At every turn, they're thanking Moses. At every turn, they're praising God and saying, thank you for sending our deliverer. We can't wait to be out of here. And now, when fear sets in, when a threat happens, they get delusional. This is delusional thinking, delusional talk. It's pathologically out of touch with reality. It's completely delusional about the past. The reality is, is that they thanked Moses. The reality is, is that they praised God. But in their fear, they have a different memory about what went on when they were back in Egypt. They're in denial. They've completely revised in their thinking what took place just five chapters before. So here's the first indicator. Is it possible that when we're not actually free, is it possible that when we are enslaved by the, by the thinking of our own uh, brains that we misremember the past? Is that an indicator that we're still enslaved? That the present moment, whatever it is, can bring into our present tense a fear that is perceived as a threat because that's how our brains are firing and perceiving the actions and our brains can literally create a different narrative of reality in order to alleviate the fear of the present. Like we can misremember the past. Is that possible? Is it possible that that's an indicator of our enslavement? But not only are they delusional about the past, they're also delusional about the present and the future. <laughs> they're angry and they're saying, didn't we tell you to leave us alone and not free us? Nope, you didn't say that. And now it gets even worse. Now they move their delusion into the present and then into the future. They say this, it would be better for us to return and serve the Egyptians than it would be to die in the wilderness. Do you notice in their way of thinking, like here's the threat, coming at us, and now the only way I know how to react to this, the only way I can see this situation of terror going down, I'm going to give the future two options. It's either we return to slavery or we die. God is nowhere in the picture. I don't even mention the fact that maybe the Lord might show up here. Maybe God could be doing something here. They don't look at Moses and go, Moses, you old sly dog, thought you only had 10 tricks up your sleeve. We're waiting on the 11th because we expect now that God has shown up 10 times in a row through these 10 plagues to deliver us. We would expect him to be faithful and do something again to keep us free. They don't do that. God never enters the picture into their moment of terror and their moment of brokenness and their moment of fear to imagine a different way of this playing out. The only way they can imagine the present and the future is either or. It's either going to be this or it's going to be that and neither one of them is good. Is it possible 
that when I'm not really free, one of the most powerful indicators of my slavery is my limited imagination of redemption. Like, I keep it this small. I have no room for God to do something. I have no room that maybe God would be active right now, and maybe God, yes, there's a threat that's coming, but I trust my God more than I trust the threat. Is it possible that one of the biggest red flags that I'm living in slavery is that I begin to future cast in either or categories? My marriage is either going to end this way or that way. Our kids are either going to turn out this way or that way. My addiction is either going to end this way or that way. There's no possible room that God could be doing something else. And so if you speak like that about your future, if you fear fantasize and it goes into either or categories and, the, and you put limits on what God might be up to, if God doesn't even enter the equation, maybe you're not as free as you think you are. Two options, back to Egypt or death. And how often our fears sound the same way. No imagination for redemption. When I'm not free, I speak about my fears with a limited view. When I'm not free, I'm delusional, I'm delusional about the past, I'm delusional about the present, I'm delusional about the future. Is it possible that God wants to deliver me from that? Which brings us to the next section of the story, which is actually the beginning of the deliverance. The deliverance starts before they even begin to cross the Red Sea. But I need to warn you, this is true for them, this is true for us. The first step of freedom for anybody is painful. Look at how the, the Lord and Moses, both of them in tandem, respond to the people's delusion. The response of Moses and of the Lord is the beginning of the deliverance. Listen to how it begins in verse 13. It says this, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Beautiful words, right? Kind of. Yes, it's beautiful. And yes, this statement is comforting from Moses and the Lord, but it, it's it's not only a comfort. It's actually a deeper comfort if we can sit with these couple sentences for just a minute. It's a comfort that comes by a rebuke. The Hebrew phrase, verse 14, Exodus 14, 14, is one of the most Pinterestable, Instagrammable, sewable things, in, sewable sentences in the Bible. Here's what 14, 14 says. It's powerful. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. That's the gospel in a sentence. It's great news. It's not quite as soft and gentle as Instagram would make it out to be, though. In the Hebrew, in the original language of this, it's actually a rebuke. It's a stern command. It's, 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 it's telling the people, it's not, hey, quiet now. Everything's going to be great. It's actually a Hebrew way of saying, shut up. You have to stop talking right now. It's not like, hey, I need everyone to be quiet because I'm going to sing us some melodies. It's actually what was commanded of people in the presence of a king. You don't speak when the king is speaking. You stay quiet when the king is speaking. It's a terse, abrupt command on the part of Moses coming from the Lord. It's a demand for silence rather than a comforting call for peace. The Lord's going to fight for you. Stop talking. Be quiet and start walking is what's happening here. The delusion has to stop. 
The people are letting their fears write a story and it's re-enslaving them. And the Lord is freeing them by first interrupting their fear fantasies. That's the first thing he, have to, he has to do. Stop, stop, stop talking. Stop talking and start walking. Stop talking yourself in circles. Walk forward and behold my glory. The thing that you're looking at and you're afraid of right now is getting power over you because you're letting the narrative that it's writing take the wheel in the present. Stop talking and start walking because when you start walking, you're gonna see something. You're gonna see what I will do for you. You're gonna see how I will provide for you. You're gonna see how I will defend you. You're gonna see how I will show up and deliver you from your enemy. You keep looking at your enemy, people of God. You keep staring at them and wondering how this is all gonna work out and thinking about future either ors and misremembering the past. I need you to stop looking at your enemy and start looking at me. Yes, your enemy is scary. Yes, your enemy has way more chariots than you because you've got zero and they are coming to decimate you. I need you to stop looking at them and start walking and looking at me. I need you to shut up and move. Because maybe deliverance into freedom first starts by me allowing the Lord to save me. Because in the heat of the moment, I, I know this personally from my own conscience. I know you know it, or I'm expecting you to know this, that I know that when you are stuck in the fear of a moment, and there's a threat, and you're terrified of the future, and you're misremembering the past, and all of it seems to be chaotic, and you start screaming out crazy things like, did you just bring us out here to kill us because there weren't graves out there? When we start talking crazy like that, I know something. You cannot get out of it unless you're delivered from it. The only way out of that kind of gripping fear, out of that kind of slavery, is to be saved from it. You can't be talked out of it. You can't self-will your way out of it. You can't be given more facts to alleviate your future fears. It doesn't work, which is exactly what happens. Please notice how Moses and the Lord don't waste one breath of trying to reason with the millions of Israelites that are freaking out. They don't spend one moment trying to talk them out of their irrational and delusional fears. God wants to lead them to freedom, and the only way into freedom is by deliverance, not by telling them how silly and irrational their fears are. He doesn't have Moses go, hey guys, um, we, we, we gotta talk about the way you're talking about the past right now, because that's not really how it happened, and we're not moving until you realize how crazy you're talking right now. Doesn't do that. He also doesn't say, hey, we're... Where did the faith go, guys? Why, why, did, why are we not imagining that God might show up? And we're going to sit here until you've learned that lesson, and when you trust the Lord to show up enough, maybe he'll show up then. None of that happens. Do you know how they get out of their fears? Do you know how they get out of their enslavement, the way that they're thinking and the way their brains are firing? They're saved from it. They have to shut up and start moving. They have to start walking in faith that the Lord is saying, come on, come on. I'm going to do something. I've already done something. I've got all this. And I want you to step into the freedom of that by walking. No one was ever talked into freedom. Everyone who's gripped into slavery, into its, into its tentacles and into its chains, has to be delivered from it. Victory and freedom has to be won for me. And so the Israelites, they do. Probably because they had no other choice. <laughs> So they walk into the freedom that's being won for them by the Lord. 
They step on dry ground with the raging waters all around them. Raging waters in the Bible always represents God's chaotic wrath and judgment. So the wrath and judgment of God is held at bay for them as walls on the right and the left. And they walk in, and when they get to the other side, the walls of wrath and judgment collapse on someone else, not them. And they get to the other side of the waters, and, and I want you to hear how the author, Moses, how vividly he describes the scene that they're witnessing. Starting in verse 28, it says this, The waters returned and covered the chariots. Yeah. And the horsemen. <laughs> the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Moses is not mincing any words here. He describes a complete thrashing. <laughs> this was not a close game, like a call at the plate. Was he home or was he safe? Like, I don't know. We'll have to debate that for years. Who won this one? Like, this was a decimation of an enemy. There was no confusion on who won this round. All the host of Pharaoh, not one of their enemies remained. The threat to Israel's freedom had been decimated. That's how the story ends. The victory of God being sure. No one is questioning whether or not God won this round against his enemy. In fact, there's this double victory that's going on because they were freed by Pharaoh at Passover and they weren't really sure if it was going to work and then the threat was still maybe alive and maybe the threat's going to still come get us. Now there's no question. You will never return to Egypt because they don't exist anymore. <laughs> I've taken care of them. And so now we, again, remember the parallels. We stand with the living, resurrected Jesus on the other side of the chaotic waters of wrath. And Jesus' victory over the grave set us free, like the Israelites, by the decimation of an enemy. Jesus didn't just come alive again and that was some cool magic trick, like final last trick by Jesus to show that he was really cool and had some street cred. His victory over the grave did something. It won something. It triumphed over something. What did he triumph over? What did he defeat? Well, the Bible and Coldplay would say that Jesus defeated our ultimate enemy, death and all of his friends. And I would imagine that if you're visiting today or if you got dragged here, if you came here for all the wrong reasons, you, you probably <laughs> assumed you would hear a sentence kind of like that. Like Easter, bunnies and graves, and we're supposed to celebrate and wear pastel. No, you're not. You don't have to. You don't have to do that anymore. Let me free you from that. You don't have to wear pastel. Thank you, Mark West. But the, the, the idea is that we hear this, this, this biblical thing that Jesus defeated death, and we have no idea what it means. And maybe we know what it means, and it's like, oh, I guess that's why I get to dance on clouds someday. Like, I'm not really sure why that's supposed to comfort me right now. Like, what does Paul mean in the New Testament when he talks about resurrection power like in the present, why would Easter have anything to do with my Sunday afternoon when I'm, I'm going home to deal with kids and a spouse and I don't know how I'm going to make my next rent payment and I don't know what's going to happen with my in-laws and all the things that you would worry about and you would go, what it, why would I even go to church and hear about Easter when it doesn't even mean anything? 
Or did Jesus defeating death and all of his friends actually give us a power that we never had before? Did Jesus' victory actually free us in a way that we could walk as free people and not as slaves anymore into whatever corners we're walking back into? Well, the Bible wants to paint a picture to describe for us and invite us into stepping into this victory and into stepping into this freedom. Like how free, how victorious does the Bible actually say you are? And how would that victory actually give me power in my Monday? In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, Romans 8 is often called Paul's touchdown dance. Like he is, he is spiking stuff all over the place and he is, he is dropping theological bombs left and right and not caring who it hits. And he is, he is going through the whole course of like, let me tell you why the victory of Jesus is good for you and good for your family and good for all of creation. He, he's, he's like unleashing all of it. Let me, let me go on a huge meta redemptive history journey with you and show you why this is the greatest news the history, in the history of the world. And one of the things he does at the very end is he's trying to land this plane of why the gospel is good news for everybody. And he tells the reader, he tells the church, people who have placed faith in Jesus, he gives them an identity. He makes an identity declarative statement about anyone who belongs to Jesus. Do you know what he says? you know what he calls us who have placed faith in Jesus? He says we are more than conquerors. Which again, we can kind of go, well, yeah, that kind of sounds like Easter talk. Like, I don't really know what that means and why that would matter for me. But that word, more than conquerors, it's three words in, in English, more than conquerors. The original Greek word, we have our Greek scholar in the house, Tucker, correct me if I'm wrong, but is a word, hypernikao. Yes. Hypernikao. It's actually two Greek words combined. And in the simplest version, it's this, hypernike. Hypernikes. I'm not making a Preachers and Sneakers reference, for those of you who know what that is. Not wearing Hypernikes right now. Um, four of you got that. You should go Google that because it's hilarious. But Preachers and Sneakers is not what I'm talking about. Hypernike is what Paul says here. What's Hypernike? Nike is the Greek word for victory. A little guy named Phil Knight did well with that word. And he created a shoe company. It's the Greek word that just means victory, victorious, conquered. And what Paul says is, is you're not just a victor. You're not just, you haven't just conquered something. You're hyper-Nike. You're hyper-victorious, meaning hyper is the superlative way to describe something. The ultimate, the complete, the highest form of this you could possibly have. You're hyper-Nike. You have the highest form of victory, so much so you have more than victory. It's like, what, what does a winning team need that's more than a victory? Like You've already, you've already won how, why would Paul give it a superlative and say you're, you're more than victorious? Because of the victory of Jesus, Paul says, you have complete, utter, superlative triumph. You have more than a victory. You have more than just a, a win over your enemy. Why does Paul say that? Why does Paul say to the church, because of the victory of Jesus, you're more than a victor? You're hyper-Nike. He explains it in the next verse. He says, you're hyper-victorious, you're hyper-Nike, you're more than a conqueror because I am sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is Paul's logic. 
You are more than victorious because nothing in the universe can separate you from the love that God has for you. Nothing. Not your sin, not what you did last week, not what you did last night, not what you're gonna do this afternoon, not the way you treated your spouse on Tuesday, not the way you treated your kids on Wednesday, not the fantasies that you had on Thursday. Nothing, not past suffering, not past sorrow, not past failure, not past uh, fears, not future fears, not future sorrow, not future suffering. Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ. Because of the victory of Jesus, you now stand victorious behind him, and you are more secure than someone who has decimated an enemy. Death wanted to have you, and Jesus wouldn't let it happen. You're more than victorious because just like with Pharaoh wanting to scrap and undo what the Passover had done, just like him bringing the full force of his army, Jesus has decimated death's best attempt to get you back and he has wiped it out completely. Like there's bodies on the shore is how victorious he is. See, because the fact that Jesus defeated death means something. There's a connection between Jesus' victory and what Paul says, that there's nothing that could separate you from the love that God has for you. The fact that Jesus defeated death means that the cup of God's wrath was poured completely on Jesus. And anyone who has the cup of God's wrath poured on them dies. And so Jesus died, because that's what happens when you get the wrath of God poured on you. That's what happens when God's full judgment comes down on you. You die. But Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. Because he rose again on Easter morning, he defeated the very curse to put him to death. He outdid the curse. He defeated death, which means this. God poured all of his wrath out on Jesus to the very last drop, which means God has zero wrath left for you if you belong to Jesus. Zero. It's not that God doesn't have wrath for sin. He's got eternal wrath for sin. You just don't have to bear any of it because Jesus bore it for you. And because he defeated death, now death has no hold on you. God's wrath has no hold on you. There is, he drank the cup of God's wrath to the last drop. If we have an alive Jesus, it means that the wrath of God against sin is now satisfied. It's like a sponge that soaked up every drop of it. And then in the resurrection, Jesus wrung the sponge out and there's no drops left. If he had only like absorbed or satisfied like half the wrath of God, then the story in Exodus 14 would have gone like this. God held the wrath waters at bay till they got about halfway across and then he let it go. And they had to suffer the, the punishment of God's chaotic wrath and judgment, and they had to bear it. Jesus held it at bay for a little while, not enough. That didn't happen to them. And the parallel should be striking to us. Not, the Israelites didn't even get wet. It was dry ground. Not one drop of wrath touched them. The wrath of God fell on somebody else, not them. The victory of Jesus is the only evidence we need that God will never ever, ever be mad at you again. If Jesus is still dead, you do still owe something for your sins. But if Jesus is alive, then there's nothing else to pay. Which means this, that if God has poured out all of his wrath on Jesus, he only has one thing left for you, delight. That doesn't mean he won't discipline you, but it does mean he'll never condemn you. The only stance God has towards you as his child is delight. 
because he poured all of his wrath out on Jesus and Jesus swallowed it whole and then walked out the other side and he took every drop of the wrath so that we could stay dry from it. Would you dare to believe today that if you belong to Jesus, the only way God will ever look at you ever again is in delight? It's the only way he can look at you. If he doesn't look at you that way, he's a liar. Because he poured all of his wrath on Jesus so that he could welcome you in as his child and only show you delight. He's not a God of second chances when you mess up. He's not a God who on a good day decides to show you forgiveness instead of wrath. He's a God that has defeated the enemy that would have you. And in so doing, he's placed you safely on the other side of the Red Sea and you stand victorious because he was victorious. He's a God who crushed your enemy to set you free. And the Bible is very clear about this. If the resurrected son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So would you stand on the banks of the Red Sea and behold what God has done for you in Christ. Behold the delight he now takes in you as his child, knowing with bold, almost too good not to be true faith, that says this, there's nothing you can do that can change the way God feels about you. And that, that statement is made, that declaration is given. Paul makes the declaration in Romans chapter eight, nothing can separate you from the love that God has for you. He makes that declaration not to a bunch of people who are on their deathbed who won't have time to sin some more. He makes that declaration to the church who's gonna wake up tomorrow and give God the finger and rebel in a bunch of ways and not want anything to do with him and doubt him and hate him and question him and go back into slavery a thousand more times. You know what Paul says to that? There's nothing you could do that could separate the way God feels about you. He will only show you delight because Jesus absorbed all of his wrath. If, if Jesus is still dead, there's still some wrath to pay. If Jesus is alive, he took it all. Not your sin, not your fear, not your past, not your future, could ever separate you from the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. So you are more than victorious now as a free son and daughter of the King. Let's pray. Jesus, we don't feel like we've conquered anything. And there's many of us who come into the room today either in the pride of thinking we have to conquer our own slavery or in the pride of thinking we didn't do it and now you're, you're very disappointed in us. And so we come back to you boldly, standing on the shoulders of Jesus. Not really sure if it could possibly be true. But would, you, would you send your spirit to this room and fall on us afresh Allow us to set down this Easter all of our works and pick up yours. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.